we're going to do is uh, we're going to bring in our friend uh, Pete Callender, and hopefully he can wake us up uh, here this morning. <laughs> it's been a long weekend, Pete. I uh, started a new company known as uh, Yankee to Dixie to Hauling, and uh, I was uh, moving uh, some of my in-laws' uh, ah. furniture uh, from east uh, down this way. So Yankee to Dixie Hauling Company was in full force over the weekend was not paying much attention to the news. I'm a little groggy today, so please <laughs> help me out. I need I need someone to make sense of the world for me. Well, here the today. great yes, the great migration from up north to uh, to the south continues. It sounds like. Just make sure. Uh, I actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I have a cousin uh, who also said she was moving down to the Raleigh area from New York, and uh, you know, I, I told my other cousin, her sister, I said, as long as she leaves her politics up there, I'm totally fine with everybody coming down here. Just Please don't New York or North Carolina. That's all I ask. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. My uh, plan would be, you know, in starting this moving company that uh, included in the services would be a change in voter registration. So, <laughs> you know, as moving people down, you know, we, we introduce them into the history of North Carolina. Like, uh, you know, Republicans had never controlled our state government until 2010. And all of a sudden, in 2010, over the last 11 years, we've enjoyed some of the biggest uh, uh, growth that our state has ever seen. Uh, people are coming uh, to work in the tech industry, in the triangle, the banking industry. In Charlotte, we've got beautiful mountains, uh, beautiful coastlines. And as you said, uh, no reason to mess up a good thing. Yeah, which it, it, it's funny you mentioned that. That is a really important piece of information, I think. If people who come to North Carolina know nothing else about the political atmosphere and environment, the, the most recent history, I think, is what you just mentioned right there, is the Republicans have only been in charge since 2010. And I think there are a lot of people who arrive in this state, they get politically engaged because they were somewhat politically engaged in whatever state they came here from. And they just assume that this is, you know, well, we're in the South. And so therefore, those evil, racisty Republicans, they've been in charge for all this time. And actually, no, the GOP took over in 2010 and they did it just as a side note here with Democrat drawn legislative maps they won with democrat drawn maps and this is important because now the new legislative session is underway the long sessions gotten underway and uh, redistricting is going to be uh, the political uh, football that gets tossed around in about uh, three months or so when this thing uh, starts getting underway with the census numbers coming in and it's going to be nasty uh, like i don't want to uh, I don't want people to think anything other than that, because it's going to get really, really nasty. It's going to be divisive because this is going to determine, you know, who gets the seats, because the way they draw the maps means that certain areas are more likely to elect Republicans or Democrats. And uh, and Democrats want, you know, they want maps where they win the majority because they think they uh, they should have the majority. They look at the voter registration numbers in the state and they say, well, look, at we have more Democrats by party registration than Republicans. Republicans do. So we should have more seats. Yet when you look at the results of the statewide elections, it's very purple, right? It's split. We we elected a Democrat governor, but the top vote getter, which I hate that term. So if you wouldn't mind, help me spread this new word, votainer, votainer, the, the top votainer was actually the ag commissioner, Steve Troxler, of all people, right? A Republican. So, you know, it, it, it is a purple state. Uh, and uh, you're not going to see one party, I think, uh, be able to dominate, uh, electorally speaking, uh, in the statewide races. We're split. But when it comes to drawing the maps, Republicans, they get to control that process. 
And in doing so, they're going to be able to draw themselves majorities again, which is what Democrats did as well for decades, for over 100 years. No, but then, of course, when the Republicans uh, draw a map uh, that tends to lean uh, you know, their way, of course, it gets uh, thrown into the legal system and uh, a judge overturns it. And then they have to go back to the drawing board and uh, the mess continues. Mm-hmm. Of course, North, North Carolina slotted to uh, you know, add another congressional seat uh, based on some of those census numbers as uh, the top outbound states in the country you know, deal with a potential loss of representation in the House of Representatives uh, because of it. Now, just uh, going through a little history lesson here with Pete Callender this morning, and uh, Pete hosts the Daily Podcast. You can find more about what he does on his website, uh, covering all sorts of uh, issues uh, from a North Carolina lens. The Pete Callender Show, uh, thepetecallendershow.com is his website. Uh, Pete, with the legislative session, you know, uh, back uh, in Raleigh and underway, I caught some headlines uh, just this past week, and as I said, I was on the road for most of the weekend, so did not catch up with much of the news cycle. Nonetheless, last week, headlines that caught my attention in the state of North Carolina, $70 million wrongly paid out in North Carolina unemployment benefits throughout the <laughs> pandemic. Uh, the hospital association the hospital association, you know, sends a memo to Governor Cooper saying and describing the fact that there is no direct plan on what the vaccination rollout looks like. Uh-huh. And we've got education bureaucrats in Raleigh discussing racial and gender studies for second grade students as far as social study standards. These these are not headlines that uh, you know we should be pumping our chest about. Right. So first off, uh, on the uh, unemployment headline. I was actually surprised it was that low. I really was. I thought I thought for sure that like when you're when you're just pushing money out of the the open door of the helicopter, just letting it rain on everybody, you have to assume that there's going to be a pretty sizable chunk of waste, fraud and abuse. That's that's the downside on helicopter money, right? When you just push it all out, you kind of have to accept that a bunch of it is going to go to people that didn't deserve it. So, uh I I expect expected that to happen, but it's government and they were trying to push all of this out as quickly as possible. And once they decided to do that, then I said, well, okay, there's going to be a bunch of waste, fraud and abuse. And I mean, I say this as a as a fiscal conservative, like I understood that was going to happen. So I'm not terribly shocked or surprised. Do I wish it didn't happen? Absolutely. Am I surprised? No. Um, On the on the the history standards, uh, you know, we're just talking about history. The uh, and, and I uh, I watched or listened in on this uh, this board of education meeting that occurred last week, uh, where they're going over these standards, the revised standards. This is not the curriculum, but look, the standards inform the curriculum for all of these classes from K through twelve, social studies and history. And what they never really were articulate or uh, articulating was this debate about critical race theory. That's at the core of what is going on here. And so they're kind of dancing around it in their debate and they're kind of, uh, you know, talking about, like, you know, systemic racism, which, by the way, you know, that's any system that results in racial inequality as a as a byproduct. When you see racial inequality in an outcome, then then the indication is that that system must obviously be racist in and of itself. And so if you're not seeking the destruction of that system, then you're complicit in the racism, right? That's how the systemic racism works. And critical race theory is tied to this in that the view of uh, uh, critical race theory is that law and legal institutions and government and basically all of these structures of our society, uh, that they are inherently racist and that race itself uh, is a socially constructed concept, 
Okay, and then it's only used by white people to further their economic and uh, their political interests at the expense of people of color. That's that's the the view. And once you start viewing everything through that prism, then you start getting into areas, you know, uh, where racial inequality emerges from the uh, social and economic and legal differences that white people have created these races in order to maintain elite white interests. It is an this is an it's oppressor oppressive the oppressed uh, sort of framing. It's a narrative that then infects everything. This is rampant in higher ed. And that's what was being debated in the adoption of the history standards and social studies standards for K through 12. The problem is it seemed like nobody was really well, except for one board member, James Ford, um, who is all in on critical race theory, believes it and is promoting it. And nobody else, the Republican members, didn't seem to be able to articulate what it was that they were actually debating. And I don't know if that's the way you're going to win that battle. But what do I know? And uh, what just uh, at a time when, uh, you know, our schools are trying to figure out uh, whether we want to uh, be open or stay closed, uh, what type of hybrid model. We've got 15,000 kids, uh, according to the Department of Public Instruction, that we can't even account for. We don't even know where they are. Just uh, They're non-existent right. uh, within the system uh, this school year. This is the priority and the focus of our State Board of Education right now. Seems like we've got our priorities a little mixed up at this point. Right, and so this is, is um, there was another headline, I think it was on Friday, where uh, the Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger announced that uh, they're working on legislation to force school districts to offer an in-person instruction option. Uh, So this way, every district has to offer that because a lot of districts around the state are not even offering that as an option. Uh, And yeah, kids are kids are failing at terrible rates and uh, the, the loss of a year of instructional time. And this is coming from one like I am not a supporter of the K-12 government monopoly model. I hate it. But once you have once you have convinced the citizenry that this is the model to go with, they then became dependent on that model and then you shut it down. Like to me, that's completely unethical uh, to to have done that, to have made people dependent on something and then withhold it in order to suss out more funding, which is what I suspect is uh, is occurring here. Um, And I'm not so sure it really does get to the it ties into this department or the, the Board of Education debate about the social studies standards in that. What is the point of this education system? What are we actually trying to do if you're trying to? produce, you know, people of letters, so to speak, you know, critical thinkers, people who are united in a concept of what the experiment of America is all about. What is it that unites us? What are we all doing here as this as part of this national identity? What are we supposed to be doing? What is the purpose of the education system then in creating people that understand that? And if if the education system is actually working against those aims and is telling people know you need to tear down all of this infrastructure because it is inherently bad, then you're actually educating, what, a fifth column, right? You're educating your own demise. And I have serious concerns about uh, the long-term prospects of this experiment when people are being taught that it is inherently bad. Well, the trends, of course, uh, showcase uh, that 
parents are starting to wake up uh, to you know the purpose of public education, and you're seeing you know the numbers sway in uh, yeah. a much different direction as far as homeschooling and the pandemic just you know magnifying this. Uh, you know the public charter school option. The, the, of course, the discussion surrounding school choice. Some people are all in, and it's no surprise that the establishment and uh, groups like the Association of Educators are, are, are you know putting out a full you know full court press on any efforts to expand this in North Carolina and in many other states like it yeah and to circle back and bring it back to your original point about the history North Carolina is new to the school choice game it's fairly new when you look at other states across America right we we only started moving in this direction when Republicans started winning races and started offering these choices and uh and, and there was a for years there were caps on the number of charter schools that could open in the state just an arbitrary cap they said you know what no more than uh let's go a hundred that's it no more than a hundred and uh before the opportunity scholarships were implemented right this was a long-term fight that was waged by uh, education reformers to give parents and students choice. And it, it's always amazing to me that you have people who promote our higher education system, right? The, the colleges and universities, but that is a choice system, right? You get to choose whether you want to go to a state college or whether you want to go to a private college. And I went to Winthrop University. It's just, it was a small school when I went there and I wanted that small school uh, environment. I didn't need to go to a school with a big football program and, you know, 100,000 people in the stands, you know, uh, on uh, Saturday afternoons. Some people want that experience. They have choice to determine for themselves where they want to go. Yet when you try to apply that very same logic to K through 12, now all of a sudden you're trying to deprive people of an education, which it never made sense to me. These are also the same people that promote the expansion of uh, Medicaid, and that is a voucherized program as well. Yet they, on the one hand, they want Medicaid expanded, but on the other hand, they don't want school choice, which is essentially the same type of a model. So um, I, I just wonder how far along, if we had been further along down the road, I would say, uh, on school choice, would the impacts of COVID been less, right? If we had parents who were already uh, in an environment where they could make all of these choices and they can move their kids to whatever environment was best for their kids, would the COVID impact have been minimized to some degree because parents had an option to get their kids out? Uh, but instead, we were, we're, like I said, we're fairly new to the, uh, to the school choice uh, uh, mechanisms. And I only, like, I, I applaud them. I want them to keep expanding. And I hope that it makes all of these systems, the you know, the government system, but also the private school systems. I hope it makes them all better because I believe in the market forces ability to do that. The Pete Callender Show, a daily podcast covering uh, the issues of the day uh, from the western part of North Carolina, our beautiful state, uh, connecting with the mountains and the coast here this morning. You can find out more about what he does, why he does it at thepetecallendershow.com. Pete, it's always a pleasure, my friend. We'll catch up soon. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, and hope your Monday goes uh, a little bit better and uh, you recover from your move. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt.